that is specific to my area of focus. But it seems to me through your research and your excellent guide sheets, and we'll provide a link to that for our listeners, that there are so many things that could be going into backyard compost for our gardens, saving climate impacts, as well as benefiting our gardens. So let's dive into this. How did you become interested in composting in the first place? Well, my work with solid waste management began 42 years ago when I was hired to correlate, to figure out why clusters of households in rural communities couldn't use their water. Their water was so contaminated. They couldn't brush their teeth, do their dishes, bathe their bodies. And they were trying to figure out, well, where did this contamination come from? It came from dumps. This is before we had the engineered sanitary landfills. And so that was alarming. And it set me on a lifetime of wanting a career of wanting to keep waste out of the landfill. And so I did a lot of work with recycling and I was hired by the university 29 years ago because recycling had just been mandated in our state and people were calling the land grant university to say, hey, how do we recycle? When I say people, I mean garbage dump managers, landfill managers and citizens, all sorts of people. So I was answering their questions and I was going to state and national conferences on recycling. And all they talked about was cans, paper and bottles. And I kept thinking, wait a minute, what about the food waste? And food waste was rarely mentioned at these conferences. And so for much of my career, I've been banging the drum about food waste for three decades now, but it's only within the last decade that people really started to notice and say, oh, that's right. I guess we need to do something about food waste. Yeah. And food waste is harder to manage than the solid cans, paper bottles, takes different handling methods. And so that's one reason why it's behind. Now over, well over a hundred communities throughout the United States do collect food waste for composting. But really in 1994, I co-founded the National Backyard Composting Program because we had, there were studies done throughout the United States and Canada examining communities and they found that really the, the cheapest way, the most efficient, lowest carbon footprint and least expensive way was for communities to encourage their residents to compost in their backyards. So compost in your backyard, if you don't have a backyard, you could have a worm bin. A worm bin can be indoors or outside. But if you keep your food waste on site and manage it yourself, then your community doesn't have to pay for trucks and personnel and fuel and emissions to collect this food waste and take it to a permitted landfill. I'm sorry, permitted composting facility. So it just makes sense to do composting at home. And then you can use the wonderful benefits because you're taking waste material and you're turning it into a valuable product that makes your soil healthy and can help you grow healthy plants. Right. Well, your state extension guide, Backyard Composting of Yard, Garden, and Food Discards, is probably one of the best I've ever seen. And for me, what was so surprising was the long list of items that can be added to that compost pile, as well as your excellent chart looking at carbon to nitrogen ratios. So I thought we could dive into a little bit of the surprising things that you can put into your own compost bin. And I have some specific questions too. So for example, you've got pizza boxes listed on what you can put into your compost bin. I've never heard of that. Do you have any concerns about that? The thing is, you're not going to take a whole pizza box and stick it in your compost bin because particle size is super important because what's making the organic materials break down is the action of microorganisms. And think about them, you know, you can't even see them. They're tiny. And so it's really important to tear things up and have things that are 
less than two inches okay when you compost them you'll notice on my list i think it's in my publication i composted my cotton futon so i had like a double size futon so a really big mattress and but it was all cotton and i thought why would i throw this into a landfill so i composted it and it just disappeared within a few months oh my gosh that's probably the most surprising thing i've ever heard going into a compost pile but you've got some other items here that are also interesting wine corks and toothpicks and hair and fur and dryer lint vacuum contents and floor sweepings things that when i think about compost i think about my kitchen scraps that you know i keep a little pot in my sink and i put all my vegetable scraps in there and my coffee grounds but i hadn't thought about adding some of these other items what do you find to be most surprising to the audiences that you speak to about what can go into a compost bin and what can't well i think yeah like dryer lint people don't think about that and me it's automatic now as soon as i clean out my dryer lint, it automatically goes into my, where I'm collecting my compostables. Which by the way, you said that you have a little container in your sink. And that's what most people do. But what I do is I keep containers in the freezer. So I have two plastic shoe boxes. You can buy them for a dollar and they don't have a lid. You don't need a lid because they're just sitting open in my freezer. And so my lint and all of the other things on this list, they go into the containers in my freezer and they immediately freeze. And so there's no decomposition, there's no odors. So it takes away the yuck factor. So people really like that. Yeah, I agree. Well, I do put eggshells, of course, into my compost bin. But I was curious about the crustacean shells. So things like if you're boiling shrimp and you're peeling off that outer shell, I've often thought that they would be great in the garden because they would have a higher nitrogen content. Mm-hmm. Well, you could. I was glad to see that on the list. And then how much do you have to break things down? Like if I'm putting something like eggshells or the crustacean shells, should I crush those up? really well first or can I just put them into my outdoor compost pile and maybe use a shovel and mash them in? Well the answer is yes to both questions. Ideally you would crush them but I try to make things easy for my audiences and for myself so I break an egg got the two halves and I just toss them in my freezer and sometimes I'll crush them with my hand but and so they're resistant to breaking down and so if you open up my compost bin right now you would see eggshells in there but they're not causing any harm they're just not breaking down as quickly as the other things will i see so food waste is mostly water and we hear that and it's hard to visualize a stalk of broccoli as water right we know that the stock part that it's hard for us to even bite into, but it is mostly water. And so the beauty of putting your food waste in the freezer is that that water will freeze. It'll turn to ice crystals. And then when it thaws, it releases all of that water. So it actually kind of, it's kind of a pre-digestion process that will speed up the decomposition of your food waste. That's interesting. Well, I was also curious to see that you have a simple compost recipe. And again, this is now going from the kitchen to outdoors. And you've got a bin and you say we should combine leaves, grass, food scraps and coffee grounds at a two to one ratio mixture of browns and greens. So let's talk about what you mean by browns and greens. So browns would be carbonaceous materials, so things that are higher in carbon, and that's why I have that little chart in my publication right. that shows, because it's not always brown. And actually, uh, we know that coffee grounds are brown, but they're actually higher in nitrogen. Yeah, so I was surprised at that. Yeah, so it's not always clear. Right. But now when I teach, I give about 50 lectures a year, And I teach people a really simple way to compost because I want to make it simple. 
so that no one has excuses. Somebody who's super busy or somebody who has a bad back or other physical limitation, I don't want them to say, oh, I can't do this. And so I've found just a really simple way of doing it. And what I do is I have a compost bin in the backyard, of course, and I fill it two-thirds of the way with dead tree leaves, and then I don't have to add more. So my composting, my act of composting, takes three minutes every week and a half to two weeks. Three minutes. So anybody who says they're too busy, it's like, really? You can't spare three minutes every two weeks? Do you turn that mixture? I don't turn it because I have a bad back. And so I have to be very careful about how I use my compost bin, which is good because it helps me teach people who have other physical limitations like I do. And so fill it two-thirds of the way full of these brown dead tree leaves. And then what I do, I use a digging fork. So it's not a pitchfork but it's called a digging fork or a potato fork. Uh-huh. So it's so compared to a pitchfork, it's straighter, it's shorter, it's not it's narrower and it has a handle and it's perfect for fitting inside a compost bin. And so I just go out there and I just stab the pile, stab into the leaves about 3 quarters of, of the way across. So there are still leaves on the other side of my of my digging fork. And then I pull the digging fork towards me, which creates a hole in the leaves. And then I just stab it in, and that holds the leaves, and I don't have to hold the fork. I'm hands-free. I can take my two plastic shoe boxes filled with food waste. I just dump them in the hole, and then I take the digging fork, and I pull it out of where I had stabbed it into the pile, and I just cover the food waste with leaves. And so the food waste, which food waste on its own will get stinky, It'll attra- it could attract animals and insects, but now it's hidden. It's encased in this compost pile. It's encased in leaves. So there are dead tree leaves under the food, on the sides of the food, and on top of the food. And I just leave it like that. And then I walk away and I and I literally don't come back for a week or two until my two containers are full. And I'll go out there in the compost pile, the level has been reduced by a whole foot and all that water that was in the food waste, it adds the moisture that's needed in the pile and the food waste is gone when I go back and nothing is attracted to it. There was one day when I was in a hurry and I was like, I don't have to be so picky about covering this food waste. And then I happened to come back by the compost pile, you know, several days later and noticed insects buzzing around outside. And I thought, ha, that's because I didn't cover the food waste. So I've been covering it ever since and no insects, no odor, no ick factor. Wow. Rhonda, let me take one break because we're a little bit over halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Rhonda Sherman. She's an extension specialist in the Department of Horticultural Science at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, and her expertise is vermicomposting, composting, recycling, and waste reduction. So you've given us some good tips on easy composting, and it is amazing to see that food waste just dwindle, and we're saving all of these garbage bags, as you say, all of the manpower and energy used in hauling food waste from our homes to the landfill, which is quite remarkable. And I just cannot get over the numbers when we consider just how much food waste is generated, not even industrially, but residentially. So your tips on creating a compost pile are really important. And then, of course, we get this black gold that we can put on our gardens. And that takes me to this carbon-nitrogen ratio, which we've touched on. 
But how critical is this to be paying attention to the amount of coffee grounds versus autumn leaves or vegetable scraps? Do we always have to sort of be mindful of that ratio? No. And I say that because, again, I have distilled it from 30 years of teaching this. I've listened to the questions from different people and comments from different people from different backgrounds and different ages. And I've just tried to make this as simple as possible for people. And so that's why today I'm saying all you need to do, like I said, fill your backyard compost bin two-thirds of the way full of dead tree leaves add the food scraps. I don't drink coffee, so I don't have coffee ground, but you don't need them. I used to think people would say, oh, my, my compost bin is sitting there and it's not decomposing. And I would think, oh, they don't have enough nitrogen. Well, it turns out that they, what I found over the last 30 years is most people don't have enough moisture. They don't realize that the action of decomposition is fueled by microorganisms. Microbes have the same needs that we do as humans. They need air, water, they need food, and adequate shelter. And so most compost bins are too dry. And that's why they're sitting there and they're not decomposing. I they're see. just too dry. They need to be 50% moisture. And so if you can visualize a kitchen sponge, so you've got a brand new kitchen sponge, it's dry, right? Mm -hmm. You run it under water, and so now it's saturated with water, and you squeeze the excess water out, and then you set it down next to your kitchen faucet, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see that it's still moist, and but it's not dripping liquid all over the place right. and so i visualize that with my compost bin you've got to be able to see the moisture there are ways of doing like a hand test to test for moisture but you can just see it with your eyes you can glance at a bin you can look at the materials inside a bin and just with your eyes you can tell whether it's too dry or or if it's moist right You've got a very well-trained eye, so I'm trying to take the novice through this process. I have a question about the bins. Let's say a person doesn't have access to a big plastic bin for whatever reason. They want to just do it on the ground. Is that possible? Just make your pile and add things to it, maybe behind a garage or off to the side of your yard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can just have a pile. It's just something that if you're only putting leaves in it, definitely, you right. can just have a pile. If you're putting food waste into it, because most people don't get, they're not thorough about covering food waste, that's when you could get animals to smell the right. food and get into it. Right. So, so when I give my PowerPoint lecture on this, you know, I tell people, yes, you can just have a pile, but you just have to be aware of your circumstances. So if you're in a suburban neighborhood with HOA rules, right. uh, with a small yard, it's probably, and, and you're going to compost food waste, which you definitely have to do because we have to stop climate change and this methane that's emitted from food waste in landfills. Right. So, so just in consideration of your neighbors, you might want to have a bin because it keeps it tidy sure. and it can keep the animals away. And when is that compost ready to go from the pile onto my garden bed? Well, so it depends. There's there's hot composting and cold composting, and so people have to decide what their needs and desires are for generating compost. Some people never even use their compost. They, they just, you know, use their bin to decompose their food waste. And not that much compost is generated that you have to clean out the bin. Right. And then you have other people who want to use it. And it really depends on how long it's been in the bin, how, how much it's composted. For example, if a huge composting facility that's permitted by the state, that is required to go through the 
heating process. Sure. And so it goes into the thermophilic stage where the temperatures are over 131 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the temperatures start to come down. And then you don't just remove the compost from there. When people buy compost and they say, oh, that compost burned my plants, it's because it wasn't cured long enough. Mm. So it has to go through a curing process. So it really depends on how long people are, what they're doing with their compost piles. Well, Rhonda, you've got a truly excellent guide sheet. You've got troubleshooting composting problems. You've got the how-tos very well spelled out. You've got directions for using compost. We just have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that you bring forth some key points that you want beginning composters to know. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, definitely compost your food waste. Compost or vermicompost your food waste. Do not put it down the drain or send it to landfills because it's very harmful to the environment. So just, and and like I said, it takes very little. And so that's why I've got, you know, I've got videos and all sorts of information on my website. So I encourage you to check that out because it doesn't have to be as hard as you think. There are a lot of myths that get passed around and people are like, oh, it's icky, it's stinky. No, it doesn't have to be. Mine isn't stinky and it's it's because I'm keeping my food scraps in the freezer so that doesn't stink and then I'm taking it directly to my compost bin and walking to my backyard and putting it in the bin and walking back three minutes and I'm done. And that's every two weeks. So it can be very simple. Mm -hmm. I'm just amazed at how much piles shrink without even using the compost. So as you said earlier, this is a really wonderful way to reduce the impact of food waste on climate change. You do have excellent videos on your website, as well as lots of guide sheets, including information on vermicomposting. In a nutshell, what would you say about that? Well, the vermicomposting, I actually have a lot more information about that on the website, and it's just due to popular demand. So literally people in 120 countries have contacted me personally to for asking for advice about vermicomposting. And so that's, that's why I have, you'll find more information on vermicomposting on my website, just because people are so interested in it. It's wonderful. It's a great way to reduce our food waste and to just help the planet and help mitigate climate change. So we are out of time. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Rhonda Sherman, Extension Specialist in the Department of Horticultural Science at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. And I cannot brag on her website enough in terms of having publications available videos. If you want to get into vermiculture or worm growing and using that on your garden, or if you want to learn how to compost, this is the source. And I will provide a link to that for our listeners. So Rhonda, thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Mr. Bill Marler. He is an accomplished personal injury lawyer and an internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness litigation. He is also the founder of Food Safety News. Mr. Marler began representing victims of foodborne illness back in 1993 when he represented Brian Kiner, the most seriously injured survivor of the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak, which resulted in her landmark $15.6 million settlement. Mr. Marler's advocacy for better food regulation has led to invitations to address local, national, and international gatherings on food safety, 
including testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Energy and Commerce. Mr. Marler is going to join us today largely to speak about the infant formula crisis. Welcome, Bill. Good to be back with you. Appreciate it. So I've been following the infant formula crisis, and you recently wrote one of your publisher's platform on Food Safety News, and I thought it was so well-written and identified so many of the problems that we face in our food system that I wanted to have you come on and talk about the issue. So we know that there was an outbreak of Cronobacter infections going on for several years, and really we didn't see quick action taking place. Two infants have died Tell me what you want to bring forth about this crisis. Well, I think there's a couple of things. There's obviously blame to go around both from Abbott's responsibility, but also the FDA and sort of by extension, our responsibility to adequately assure that the FDA has a is to do it. You know, if you take a look at the Abbott issue, there were plenty of warning signs that Abbott's manufacturing facility in Sturgis, Michigan, was not safely producing infant formula, really for our most vulnerable population. If you look at the inspection reports from 2019, 2021, there was a gap in 2020 because of COVID. FDA didn't go in there at all, which is obviously concerning. But then there was a whistleblower report that came out in October of 2021 that essentially mirrored what the FDA then found in 2022. So there was enough problems going on, positive coronavirus tests and product, positive coronavirus tests on equipment that should have been blaring sirens and red flashing lights to Abbott that they needed to up their game in the production of infant formula. Exactly. We should talk a little bit about Cronobacter because Mm -hmm. this is an organism that is not tracked the way Salmonella and E. coli is. Why is that? That is a very good question. And I helped a group named STOP, which is essentially a group that was formed after the Jack in the Box outbreak to advocate for victims, they just wrote to the CDC and the territorial epidemiologists requesting that Coronabacter be a reportable disease in all states. Right now, it's a reportable disease in only one state, Minnesota. And why that's important is E. coli, salmonella, listeria is all reportable. So if somebody gets sick in Florida and Texas and Louisiana, Oregon, those illnesses are reported both to their state health departments and then on to the CDC, which then can be tracking to see if there's some common connection between these people. So if you're, you know, you're missing 49 states, you're really at a disadvantage to catching an outbreak sooner rather than later. So I don't know the rationale behind having Coronavirus not being reportable, it's likely that because it's such a rare disease, which begs the question is maybe it's because it's not being reported, that, but that's, to my view, is something that needs to change. Do you know the source of Coronavirus? It is a, an environmental pathogen. So like listeria, it is in the environment. And so that does make tracking the cause of Coronabacter somewhat more difficult for E. coli, salmonella, you know it tends to be an animal fecal bacterium where like hepatitis A is a human fecal virus. You, you start to kind of know where they come from, but things like listeria, things like Coronabacter are in the environment and so make it somewhat more difficult to particularly track. Okay. Now, we should talk about who is responsible for ensuring a safe food supply and specifically infant formula. We've got the U.S. Department of Agriculture and we've got the Food and Drug Administration largely looking over food. 
who is responsible specifically for infant formula and what happened in this case? You mentioned that they didn't have inspectors during the the heat of the COVID outbreak, but are there not individuals within manufacturing processes that also do safety checks in addition to what FDA and USDA might be responsible for? Right. So in the most simple terms, the breakdown between USDA and FDA essentially is that USDA division of what's called Food Safety Inspection Services, FSIS, they do uh, meat, they do poultry, they do beef, they do pork, and that's what they do. The FDA does essentially everything else, except they do fish, but they don't do catfish. USDA does catfish. So, And then there's some breakdown sometimes between pizzas, depending upon how much meat there is, they actually might be reviewed by both uh, entities. So it's a little confusing, but ultimately right now, the FDA is responsible for infant formula. Infant formula is considered to be a high-risk food item and so has sort of a higher level of scrutiny or should have a higher level of scrutiny from the FDA. But generally speaking, at best, they get into a plant once a year. That's in stark contrast to USDA inspectors in meat facilities that are in these meat facilities every day inspecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but your point is absolutely, the, there's DPs of food safety, there's line people working at these factories that should be responsible for food safety. If you've looked at the consent decree that the FDA filed a lawsuit against Abbott and then they did a consent decree about what they were gonna do, they specifically named the director of food safety as a defendant in the lawsuit. Mm. Well, there were falsification of records at the plant. There was also a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the whistleblower in particular? Thankfully, we have whistleblowers who come forth and say, hey, wait a second, this is really a dangerous situation. Tell me what the whistleblower specifically saw that wasn't right. So if you take the whistleblower's report and that that he or she, we don't know that, sent to a variety of people at the FDA, the whistleblower knew at least who they should send it to at the FDA. And the FDA appears to have just ignored it, at least ignored it, and haven't really discussed when they were aware of it and what they did with the information. But they appear to have essentially ignored it until it became public. And it appears that it came public through Congresswoman Delora's office. And so exactly how that played out, I just don't know. But essentially what the whistleblower indicated was that there were positive samples of coronabacter that were not reported to the FDA. There was a positive environmental samples not reported to the FDA. There were cleaning issues. There just essentially was a lack of standards that one would hope for in an infant formula manufacturing facility. And I think the key point, too, is is that what the FDA found when they went into the facility in January 2022 mirrored very closely many of the findings that the whistleblower was reporting. Mm. Now, the Sturgis plant has since been shut down, and that is contributing to a massive shortage of infant formula. And that, of course, creates a whole other layer of concern. And one of the things that I just wanted to bring forth, and I'm going to bring this up from way back decades ago when I was working with young families, and that is that there is a very large risk from diluting infant formula. So if families are in a shortage situation and a baby is crying and anyone who's had a child or been in the vicinity of a child that's hungry, the crying can be maddening. 
And so you can understand how parents might be tempted to dilute the smaller amount of formula that they have. But I just want to let our listeners know that there is a great risk for diluting formula. It can be fatal. Babies suffer from water intoxication because it interferes with their ability to absorb nutrients. So we have to talk about, well, what are our alternatives? And I know that we are getting imports of formula. There had been restrictions on importing formula with uh, strict tariffs attached to those because we didn't want to interfere with the makings or the mechanisms of the U.S. production. What do you want our listeners to know about the shortage issue? Well, the tariff issue sort of aside, you know, that's a, you know, that's a political issue that's been around at least for three or four years. I mean, I, I also look at the fact that, you know, one of the things the pandemic has teaching us is how vulnerable our supply chain is and how when you have companies that have such enormous market share or when we are relying on products that are produced overseas, like we've seen it in like the masks and the gloves situation that you know, we de- were dependent upon, you know, supply chains that were very long that stretched to China. And, you know, we wound up not having enough masks and not having enough gloves, not having enough PPE. I think we're sort of seeing that same issue playing out here in the infant formula where you have, when you take one manufacturer offline for a period of time it just has this enormous ripple effect when you couple it with supply chain issues and tariffs which you then you have just having military aircraft flying in infant formula from europe it's clearly we're learning a lot about supply chain and powers of the marketplace that uh, shouldn't be on the backs of you know moms and dads looking for infant formula Exactly. Um, you know, that, I mean, I think the sort of the, the bigger issue that I don't really have a handle on is that when you essentially had Abbott under, arguably under investigation from September of 2021 until they were shuttered in February of 2022, what could the FDA and Abbott have been doing in that intervening five months? to assure that the plant would not have to close because I would think that both Abbott and the FDA would have some idea that if that plant closed, the impact it would have on infant formula supply. And I think that's just, that's a part of an untold story that, you know, the FDA and Abbott haven't answered yet. But I think that that's really going to be something that I think needs to be fleshed out, primarily because we don't want to find ourselves in this same situation, either with infant formula or some other product that is really necessary for children and others in our society. Well, let me take one break, Bill, because we're halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Mr. Bill Marler. He is an accomplished personal injury lawyer and internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness litigation. He is also the founder of Food Safety News, which has run a series of excellent review articles about the infant formula crisis. I'm really glad you brought up the role of the FDA because there's been a lot of discussion about FDA. It stands for Food and Drug Administration, and that The F part of that word, food, has really fallen by the wayside, and much of the energy and effort of FDA has focused mostly on drugs. And there's been discussion about, well, should we break away and have a separate food agency? Do you have any thoughts about that? Boy, that's a, you know, that that has been discussed for, I don't know, two decades or Mm -hmm. more to have, and there have been fits and starts in. I think almost every administration since the Clinton administration, you know, I, a wise person, and I think it was Mike Taylor who was head of FSIS in the Clinton administration and then head of food safety at the FDA in the Obama administration. I think he once said that you are sort of building a food safety system 
the government, you certainly wouldn't do it the way you <laughs> you did it now. But I personally think that that there is utility in pulling together essentially about 13 different public entities into one shop that was focused on food safety writ large, both from a nutritional point of view as well as the straight-up pathogen reduction point of view. But I'm not quite sure what, what the, the reason for that not happening has been. I think there's probably lots. But I still think we obviously need to focus on food safety and nutrition with the, the bureaucracy that we have. But, you know, the FDA is under a lot of pressure presently. You've seen some of the articles in Politico and recently about some of the miscommunications within FDA and the lack of clear authority that I think in many respects causes many of the food safety crises that we see today, including the infant formula one. And I think the infant formula industry, like so many industries, really, they don't like to be regulated. And yet when you have a crisis like this, it just shows that we need to rethink how we think about regulation and see them more as protections. Mm -hmm. I also think that you bring up a good point about all the lessons that COVID is teaching us. And I think that there's been such a big push in the food industry to consolidate for efficiency, mm -hmm. but we're learning that there is a cost to that right. push for efficiency. So we've got four basic manufacturers for all of the infant formula that we use. And I was interested to learn that Abbott actually supplies half of all of the WIC agencies, and that stands for the Women, Infant, and Children Program. Any thoughts about that? You know, we live in a capitalist, market-driven economy. And going back to my one of my bachelor's degrees was in economics. And so one of the things about capitalism is, is that if left unchecked, it does tend to skew towards monopoly. And that's what we're seeing. And, you know, when whether it be a monopoly or an infant formula, capitalism will skew that way. The other thing, too, is, is that with globalization, uh, there's all kinds of benefits to globalization, prices being reduced, having market commercial relationships with countries that perhaps we normally would be competitive from a military point of view. But one of the problems all of that has is that when there's a crisis, whether it's a production failure at an infant formula factory that deals with 40% of the supply or COVID and you need a gloves and masks, but they're all made in China, it becomes problematic. And there's that's where regulatory balance needs to be added to the equation. Absolutely. So if you had a some sort of a, a magic ball where you could look into the future from a legal perspective, what do you think the future of infant formula production is going to look like as a result of this tragedy? Well, I do think that the, you can see from the consent decree that the FDA and Abbott entered into, I think uh, Abbott is facing some level of civil liability on behalf of the, the victims of this tragedy. But also I think they have to worry fairly significantly about the criminal fines, most likely, not jail time, but I think you are looking at this company may well be facing some criminal sanctions for what happened. You know, longer term, I think that there are certain, I think we've learned a lot both in COVID and by this crisis that there likely are products that we need to make sure that we have adequate, shall we call it surge capacity when there's a crisis. So we aren't left flat-footed or without, whether it be instant formula or N95 masks. Right. And I think, too, that this is a, a wake-up call that while breastfeeding is not as economically favorable to the industries that are making infant formula, 
I think it's important for women to understand that infant formula is really expensive and it costs about $1,000 a year where breastfeeding is essentially free for the 500 extra calories that women need to consume to produce the breast milk. But our hospitals really aren't geared towards supporting women and their newborn babies. You know, there rarely can you find a lactation consultant on staff 24-7, although they're needed that often. I think we as a culture need to look more in terms of how can we support mothers and their new babies. We say that we love children and we want to support them, but when it comes right down to it, we don't seem to behave that way. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, as a, as a father of three daughters, we had the luxury and my wife was able to stay home and breastfeed and, you know, work part-time and that worked out great for us but we as a society need to really come to grips with supporting moms and babies you know I know that in my law firm we have a a, both a a father and mother parental leave uh, four months and of course my oldest daughter just told me that uh, the company she works for has a five-month policy, so now I'm under the gun to <laughs> increase that. So, That's great. So, but, you know, the, the fact is, is that we need to do that, and we need to, businesses do need to support, government needs to support moms and dads, you know, in this real critical point where the first months of life in these, these babies is so critical to their health and their future well-being both to the the individual child, their family, but also to all of us. So I think we really need to step up our support for that. And exactly how we get there, uh, I'm not sure, but I know I'm going to add another four weeks to my leave policy to make me at least equal to my daughter's employer. Well, (laughs) it's, it's really wonderful whenever an employer shows that kind of respect for their workers. You know, we give a lot of lip service to essential workers, but treating essential workers with respect, and that means helping them through childbirth and supporting their new babies is really important. I want to, I really want to talk about the value of food safety news in the remaining time that we have. We just have a few minutes. And I've been a big fan of your newsletter and your personal blogs for many years. And I love to track, for example, the food recalls that you have. Most recently, I've been reading about Jif peanut butter, as well as keeping track of what's new in the salmonella and the chronobacter infant formula Mm -hmm. contamination stories. Mm -hmm. But how do you keep up with all of this recall data? It is mind-blowing, isn't it, to see just about every day there's a recall? Well, the great thing is, real quickly, you know, I started Food Safety News in 2009, early 2009, essentially was a run-up to the coverage of the Food Safety Modernization Act. There were just a lot of really great reporters at some of the major newspapers and magazines that, and TV stations that had just sort of disappeared who covered food safety. And I just saw that it really was, there was a need for it. So I hired a couple of reporters and then we we now are up to four full-time reporters, one in Europe, one in New York, one in Kansas, and one in Colorado. And we they pretty much cover the world. And they they have contacts and pay attention to what governments are doing around the world with respect to recalls, food safety. You know, they go to all the major food safety conferences, the International Association of Food Protection and uh, Europe just happened, a food safety summit just occurred in Chicago. So it's a labor of love for a bunch of really good reporters, and I'm really pleased that I've been able to sort of help support them. Well, this is a one-stop shop in terms of anybody who wants to keep up with what's going on in the larger food system. And I just was perusing some of your titles under the recalls, 90 tons of bacon topping recalled because of metal pieces. You know, that I mean, it's mind-blowing, yeah. isn't it, to think about the yeah. quantity and, and what happens to that, especially as we're getting so focused on climate issues and 
food waste and resource use for all of this. Any final words on these larger issues? You know, philosophically, this is 30 years of experience of dealing with most of the major outbreaks that everyone knows about from Jack in the Box to Listeria and Cantaloupe to Salmonella and Peanuts. The one thing that I have been struck with is many of these companies sort of stop thinking about the fact that they're actually manufacturing a product that goes into people's stomachs. Yeah. And that they are so focused on production that it's not really the product of a food like we think of it. It's just another manufactured item. And I think that that's really what manufacturers and, and regulators need to focus on is that these are products that go into many times the most vulnerable individual's mouths. It's our children, our elderly, uh, our immune-compromised citizens. And I think they need to take a, a real hard look at how they're doing it and realizing that it's, it's a very special type of a, of a product. It's not some car part. You exactly. know, it's infant formula. Right. Well, we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Bill Marler, personal injury lawyer and internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness. His website is foodsafetynews.com. I'll provide a link to that. Thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Marler. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Nice to talk to you again. ville en fête et en délire suffoquant sous le soleil et sous la joie et j'entends dans la musique les cris, les rires qui éclatent et rebondissent autour de moi et perdu parmi ces gens qui me bousculent étourdi désemparé je reste là quand soudain je me retourne il se recule et la foule vient me jeter entre ses bras Emporté par la foule qui nous traîne, nous entraîne, écrasés l'un contre l'autre, nous ne formons qu'un seul corps. Et le flot sans effort nous pousse enchaîner l'un et l'autre, et nous laisse tous deux épanouis, enivrés et heureux. Entraînés par la foule. 